Welcome to Impact the World, the show for and about creatives, changemakers, and entrepreneurs. This is a conversation episode where a special guest shares with me what they are creating and the behind the scenes journey of their experience. Hi, welcome to Impact the World. And my guest for this show is Carolyn Kostin. Carolyn has been a pioneer in the world of eating disorder recovery for 40 years. And when I first met Carolyn, I was not only struck by the work she had done in the world and really how she had had to go against convention in order to pioneer, but also her spirit and her connection to spirituality. I also had my own experience with an eating disorder in my teens. So it was interesting to talk to her a little about that too and what the origins of eating disorders are. But for those of you who feel completely disconnected to eating disorders, you might enjoy this conversation anyway as we speak about our society's culture where weight and body image are concerned and how it is its own kind of disease. So I hope you enjoy this show. And as ever, if you want to support the show, you can subscribe, rate, or review the show over on Apple Podcasts. Enjoy. Carolyn, thank you so much for being here. Uh, you and I got connected, I think it was almost a year ago, by Deva and Miten, who are your, your good friends. And uh, it was so funny when we met immediately, I think within about 10 minutes, I was like, oh, I'd love to have Carolyn on the show to talk about the work that you've done in the world, because you've been a real pioneer. Mm, that's so great to hear. Makes me feel good. <laughs> good, good. So, I mean, maybe for people who aren't familiar with, with your work, could you kind of take us right back to the beginning of, of really what was the seed for you around this dedication that you have had to the field of eating disorders and recovery? Well, you know, it's so interesting because I think most people think, oh, because I had a, an eating disorder myself, obviously that's how I got into this. And, and it is in a way, but there were a lot of other little pieces along the way, you know? I mean, I never thought for a minute that this thing I had that almost killed me, I was gonna make my life's work. But, you know, I think in some ways we are set up like that, you know, the wounded healer kind of thing. But, you know, I had my own, I suffered from my own eating disorder. Oh gosh, you know, it's over 40, it's over 50. Oh my God, I'm getting older, 50 years ago. <laughs> You know, when I got this diagnosis and uh, never would I have realized that it would lead to not only a, a tumultuous experience journey where I discovered so much and opened myself up to so much, um, but also eventually then became an eating disorder therapist in 1979, you know, long before this was ever really um, exposed to the world so much, you know? I mean, it was before Karen Carpenter was on the cover of Time Magazine and that sort of exploded things in I think the early 80s. Um, and I just started with a private practice but soon realized that a lot of people need more help and they need more help than um, just what a, an individual therapist can provide. And that led to my um, running hospital programs, which then I thought this is an, an abysmal way to treat people. 
And I really wanted to open a place that I thought would be um, the kind of place I would have wanted to go when I had my own eating disorder. And there were no residential treatment centers at the time. Now they're sort of, you know, you're ubiquitous in a way, but at the time we were treating people in hospital settings, you know, the white robe, the clinical environment, the kind of place where you'd get your food on a tray with a little silver thing, you know, and people in their lab coats, you know, taking notes while you were eating. I just thought this is not the way for people to get better. And I, I guess what I want to mention is throughout my life, you know, what I realized is um, I recovered from this. And when I became a therapist, I thought, you know, um, I first became a therapist not to treat eating disorders. I was a school teacher, then I became a school counselor, and someone said, oh, there's this girl that had that thing you had, you know? And mm -hmm. at first I was very reluctant, but when I met with this girl and I realized I felt like I could be inside her head, you know? And I also thought to myself, look, um, if I could do this, you can do it. I don't have any magical skills. And I just started down this path and, um, and then it led to what I just said and to opening this residential treatment center where I was able to, you know, hire a cook to come in and make beautiful foods. And we grew a garden and we had meditation and yoga and people thought, <laughs> I mean, this is, goes from running a charter hospital eating disorder unit to this beautiful place that was really a healing center. And I, I, I really looking back now can say, I think it changed the course of events for what was offered as services for, for treatment and eating disorders. Well, it's, it's funny because I remember when we first met and we were talking about this in your, in your backyard, you said something to me that was so obvious, but really powerful when I heard it, you said, um, that it used to be that eating disorders were treated the same way that um, alcohol and drug addiction was treated. Right. But the problem was, you said, uh, you know, an alcoholic or a drug addict can let go of those things, but they, they can't stop eating. Uh, you know, right. eating is going to happen and it's going to be part of your life. And I'd never really put that together, but I thought, yeah, of course. I mean, you know, food is a very primal everyday relationship. So when your fixation or your disorder is on that, you really have to look at it in a very different way. You know, it, it was, it seems so obvious and it's still an ongoing, not, yeah, maybe a little bit battle, ongoing controversy in the field because there are still people who believe in doing it in the sort of addiction model, um, using the 12 step. I mean, certainly there are addictive components to it, but I remember thinking early on in my practice when people were coming to me and telling me, you know, they were going to, these OA meetings and I was, you know, curious and inquisitive about it, wanted to know. And they described how one of the first steps was admitting they were powerless over food. Mm. And then I thought, oh, you know, look, you are a powerful human being and here's food and here's you. You can't possibly be powerless. It's what you have come to think about food and what it comes to represent in your life and whatever way you're using food or your weight um, or even exercise as a way to deal with, distract from, or cope with other problems in your life. So it's not the food that's the problem, you know? Yeah, yeah. And so a, co a couple of interesting things that, that I remember when we spoke, one of the things that I learned as I got older, and I, I'm guessing for anyone who's watching or listening to this show, 
who either has an interest in eating disorders or thinks they may be in one or have recovered from one, one of the things that maybe it would be great is if you could just give us a, a kind of overview of the differences between, say, why someone goes for anorexia over bulimia. And I'm asking that as someone who had bulimia in my teens. And it's something I read about, and, but I'm curious what you could give us as a kind of general or a kind of overview. Yeah, well, I can certainly give you as it, it, as a general keeping in mind that, you know, people don't do what we want them to do and stay in their diagnostic categories. So we have a, a, a number of people who develop anorexia nervosa, for example, that then in recovery switch over to bulimia nervosa. So there's a shift or, or even binge eating disorder. Um, but we do know a lot more now about the temperament of people. And so there, there have been these temperament studies that look at genetics and all that and look at predispositions or let's say vulnerabilities to going towards one illness versus the other. And one of the things, particularly in restrictor anorexia nervosa, because there's also people who have anorexia who uh, engage in binging and purging as well, but still meet the criteria for anorexia. But anyway, there's a temperament involved in anorexia that is uh, has to do with um, perfectionism, more on the line of anxiety, um, compulsivity, uh, you know, wanting order, you know, uh, control junkies in a way. And um, interestingly enough, this leads to a whole, well, I'll put that aside for a second. So then you look at bulimia nervosa and they tend to be people who are more risk takers, more um, on the impulse end of things, more jumping into things and then looking back later, whereas someone who has the temperament of someone with this anorexia nervosa temperament is a little more, you know, I'm gonna look at everything and study it and know exactly what I'm doing before I jump in. And so you can see how that approach, it's why I have a um, assignment called, how's my relationship with food like my relationship with people? Because you look at people who have anorexia and they will say, I'm very, um, discerning about who I allow in my life and I usually only have one friend and I'm not that gregarious at parties and, and on and on and they are the same way with food you know I take it in small bits I like to know I, I eat the same things all the time whereas someone with bulimia might say I try all variety of foods you know I uh, one story I, I love telling is in this assignment asking this girl who had bulimia nervosa, how's your relationship with food like your relationship with people? And she said, oh, I binge and purge men all the time. And the thing is, that's what she did, you know, taking in relationships and then getting rid of them, that kind of impulse plays itself out in, in other areas of our lives. But the beauty of this, I think, is when you, when I was listening to the researchers who were up there, you know, giving the talks and saying, this is the temperament for anorexia nervosa. And they would say, you know, perfectionism, anxiety, compulsivity. And I'm looking at that and I think to myself, well, I don't think I'm a perfectionist. I just think I'm detail oriented, you know, and I don't feel like I have anxiety. I, I prefer to call that high energy or yeah. compulsive. I just have tenacity. And so when I watched this, 
I, and I've written about this, uh, how we all have these temperaments, but they can be seen as liabilities or assets. Mm-hmm. And so what I do with people is uh, I work with them at how do we take your traits um, from the darkness to the light? Because we're not going to get rid of them. I knew I was born with this kind of temperament. I was more anxious than my peers. I had school anxiety when I was a kid. I'm the person, you know, reading the, the book in, on the school bus, you know, with a flashlight, you know, wanting to make straight A's. But how do you take that and help somebody learn how to channel that? And that I think is what's so beautiful about being recovered doesn't mean that you get rid of yourself. It means that you take yourself and you use your own traits for their highest good, which has really helped me, I think, in terms of my success in working with these, this population. I love that. And, and it's funny because my, my personal development and metaphysical discovery journey went parallel with my healing from my teens and there's so much crossover like you said yeah, mine too. The, things, the things that you see that you you're learning and uncovering about yourself um but but it's funny you know something just came to me um we love the show the crown on netflix yeah. and we just watched season three and it um it details diana princess diana right. I'm right show. there. I'm right. I'm right at oh. the part where she they're showing her and the whole development of her bulimia. Yeah. But here's what here's what struck me. Those episodes where she is having she's in her bulimia and we see evidence of her binge eating desserts and then throwing right. up in the toilet. They all were accompanied by a warning at the beginning of the show that you right. are about to see graphic scenes of. So the first thing I thought was, oh my God, how bad is this going to be? And then my second realization was, I'm like, and here we are in a world where we can watch people have their heads blown off, awful things happen, like really graphic, violent, terrible stuff. And there's never a warning for that. Where's the trigger warning for that? Well, that's because activists and advocates in the field have been very upset at the at the various portrayals of eating disorders. And one of the things they, I think, were trying to do is uh, help not trigger people. But, you know, I, I agree with you. People get exposed all the time. And I don't think watching something, that one thing is going to cause an eating disorder. Because, like I said, it takes temperamental traits. It, it, it's also living in this culture, by the way. So it's not just having these traits. And then it's some other psychological uh, and environmental, social stressors that come in so it's a variety of things that are going to lead to an eating disorder but but that's an interesting point that that you that you mentioned that well and the reason that it struck me was it showed me how behind we are and i was kind of glad that it was being depicted but i thought wow this this could have been 25 30 years ago that we were witnessing uh, this thing that's been pushed aside we don't talk about bulimia we don't talk about And I thought, well, that is a good thing, but it's very interesting that they felt the need to give a trigger warning because I watched it and I'm like, oh yeah. (laughs) I'm like, I know that that scene. I lived that scene. I I I get it completely. But but like you, I also managed to, you know, that those those impulses aren't active in me anymore. So it's kind of it's just an interesting thing. But and it's so great to hear you say that because you know, people, one of the things that I became known for 
is that I said you can be recovered. That's part of the whole, it's not an addiction. I'm not recovering for the rest of my life. I'm not fighting it one step at a time, you know you can really be recovered. And I think what needs to happen on shows, and I don't know what happens on this show, is that they often do things like show the really bad parts of the illness and the ugly parts and don't give an, enough um, airtime and credence and understanding of how people get better and that they do get better. And so in a way, I still have clients who come for seeking consultations who have been told they will have to learn how to manage this for the rest of their lives. And, and that's sad. And, and the other thing that's really important is when someone comes to me, I always say, um, we're not, I'm not going to go in there and take this eating disorder away, which is how a lot of people approach it. What I'm going to do is strengthen your healthy core soul self in there. And that part's going to heal the eating disorder not me, not a treatment program. That's the thing to do, no matter how small the healthy self, soul self is. Um, and I use those in different ways, but um, we can, even if it's the tiniest little flame, blow on that, strengthen it, enhance it, hold up a mirror and show you where you have it. And that's what I think really, right? I mean, ultimately we heal ourselves. No amount of supervision or controlling a person in a treatment setting you can put weight on somebody but when what happens when they leave you know well, it's interesting because you even alluded to this in a way when you talked about the diagnoses of the anorexic as a perfectionist they're controlling and you you know that's a very judgmental from the outside i'll yeah. put this label on them and we'll we'll slant it only in the negative whereas you're able to go yeah, I'm detail-oriented, and that's actually a gift. And right. if, if that gift is allowed to be celebrated and, and to find a different place to put its energy and the part of your energy that's going in another direction with it gets to heal. So, so I think there's well, something you know, about that empathy too. I think of it in terms of uh, a frequency, you know? How do you take that frequency, the same one that, that would would go towards perfectionism, how do you turn it towards something that is of a, of a higher goal or a higher nature or works for your higher self? But it's the same kind of energy, right? It's the same kind. Like my friend who is also very impulsive, and, but she is the most spontaneous. She's the type of person where we're riding bikes. We're in um, somewhere around Vancouver, we're riding bikes. And she sees a lake and she jumps off the bike and says, I'm gonna go jump in it. And my tendency is, where's the signs? Is this on the map? Are we gonna get in trouble? I have to think those things, but she, so we, we need all those kinds of temperaments. It's just that hers got her also into trouble with an addiction yeah. uh, and, and you know uh, things that caused her to be impulsive in a different way. Hmm. So yeah. I look at those and, and I think being recovered is when you, um, you know, you accept your natural body size and shape and you no longer use food or weight or exercise in self-destructive ways. And, and one of the parts in my definition of being recovered is that you are no longer willing to compromise your health or betray your soul to look a certain way, wear a certain size, 
reach a certain number on the scale and you no longer use food or, or your weight as a way to cope with, distract from, or deal with problems. So I put that up, you know, I have a, I wrote that all down once in, in a book I wrote in 2006. I real oh, it was such a fun book to write. It was um, questions and answers about eating disorders. And it so went into my temperament because I got to write all the questions and all the answers, you know? <laughs> it was so great. And I thought one of the questions had to be, because um, I talked about being recovered. Well, what is recovered? And I realized the definition in the, in the field, I mean, it can't just be getting rid of the clinical diagnostic symptoms because for bulimia, for example, that would mean you could still throw up once a week, but you didn't meet the criteria because the criteria was twice a week, you know? Mm. So there are things that I realized that I wanted to write my own definition of what recovered is and say to clients who came to me, here's where we're going, you know, where food and weight and shape take a proper perspective in your life. It's not like you have to never think about it or, I mean, obviously I told you I got ready for the, I put makeup on today. I mean, you can have concerns about the way you look, but they take a proper perspective and your yeah. brain doesn't get hijacked by them, which is what happens in an eating disorder. Yeah, you know, it's one of the gifts I had. I was about 22 and I had a really good friend in Manchester at the time. And um, she said to me one day, I was eating some chocolate with her. And so I was probably three years out of bulimia at that point. But, you know, I was, I was in Weight Watchers age 10. So for me, diet clinics were, were a reality from like the age of nine through 16. So that, that's what I'd grown up with. And um, I was eating chocolate with her and I can't remember what I said, but it was a light bulb moment when she turned around and she said, do you ever like just eat chocolate like it's a treat and just in yeah. are glad you did? And I yeah. was like, it was, it was like a revelation. I was like, oh, of course. No, I, no, because surely now I should be worried that I'm going to gain the weight. And so, you know, the, there's all of that mental conditioning. And and you know, that's the cultural piece. That's the diet culture, pursuit of thinness, image is more important than substance. And that's why my own healing came from my own discovery and journey into, I started vociferously reading because back then, you know, there were no treatment programs and the couple first psychiatrist I went to had no idea. They had never even seen someone with anorexia before. And I was on a quest anyway, and I was beginning to read things like um, the Dancing Wooly Masters by Gary Zukoff, you know, stuff like that. I was reading about Buddhism, and I was starting to comp contemplate this whole idea of what it's like having a soul, you know, what it's like being a soul, not even having a soul, being a soul, and the difference between ego and soul. And when you start looking at things like that, then everything becomes a little more like, like you re-enchant your life in a way. And in a way that when you're doing, you know, diet culture and we're fed all this stuff about the way we're supposed to look and all that, there's no doubt in my mind that culture has, is a huge contributor to eating disorders, but you will see people talking about it. And this is where I also disagree you know, as an addiction, as you know, or as a brain disease, because of the temperament and the genetic piece. Yes, we have done genetic studies. And yes, we know there's a vulnerability. But as I say to people, I'm recovered, my genes didn't change. 
my mm. relationship to understanding myself and how I can use ancient practices um, like mindfulness meditation things and like yoga that is all about helping me to like yoga means you know yoke or union to help connect body mind and the divine and that's why all those little pieces that i brought into when i opened a treatment center are things that had helped me and i didn't know necessarily when i first started using them they were going to work but i already had 15 years in private practice before i opened the residential and i just realized there has to be be a better way and uh you know i think maybe i should talk about the dream should i mention the dream please do i would i, would, I think this is great time to talk about that well, I want to um, I want to say something uh, about people who I was told um, in in ways. Let me say this first. I was told in ways, you know, not to do this. I was told not to go out there um, and tell my my clients, clients, patients. I sort of interchange that word because people have different preferences. But um, that I was recovered because it was disclosing too much, and I knew that that was like seeing somebody who got hit by lightning and I got hit by lightning and not telling them. It just felt not yeah. right. And, and so I think people are watching this who, yes, I'm saying a lot of eating disorder stuff, but I'm also saying follow your, your instinct. When you have a yearning, when you know, I knew it was right to tell people I'm recovered and you can too. I knew it was right to share that. I knew it was right that working in a hospital unit where I was seeing that people, we were not training them to go to the store and buy food and make it or grow it in a garden and have a more soulful relationship. We, it was about what weight are you putting on? And, you know, I, when you have feelings like that, look around, there wasn't um, an alternative place for me to put them. So I ended up creating an alternative place. And, and believe me, there was no license for it. So I was first told that we don't have a license for that. You, we have a license for an old age home and we have a license for chemical dependency. There's no licensing program, but I just said, okay, well, I'm gonna wanna start one anyway. So if you want me to have a license, you better create something for me. You know, There are ways, I think, if you just keep going. Yeah. And, and also I didn't know. I didn't know if I opened it, if it was going to be filled. People said, oh, insurance isn't going to pay for it. And I, I know it was risky. And I know not everybody is going to take such a big risk. But I hope it can be a sign to even take a little risk in the direction of where your heart or your dreams are telling you to go. And I'll mention this dream that happened to me about at least 10 years before I opened Montanito, I had a dream where I had six girls. We were in a home. We had a chef cook a meal. We went for a hike. We came back to the home and we were sitting around talking and then they were going off to their respective rooms for the evening. And I woke up and I told my husband, I had the weirdest dream. I had this dream about, it was kind of like a, treatment center but it was in a home anyway fast forward 10 years later a friend of mine was buying a house in the area called Montanito and she wanted me to come look at it she wanted to use it for a different purpose 
And as I drove up the driveway, I had that weird tingly deja vu feeling like I've been here before, but I'd never been off the canyon into the area of Montanito. And I got out of the car and I'm walking up the steps. It's that pringly kind of weird, I recognize this. By the time I walked in up to the kitchen, I absolutely knew, oh my God, this was my dream. Mm -hmm. And here's, I know where the living room is. I know where the bedrooms are. I started getting all excited and I told my friend, you are not gonna believe this, but I had a dream that I had six girls in a, a, and had a treatment center here. Well, she ended up saying, I mean, bless her lovely heart. I mean, she ended up saying, you can have it. You know, I think wow. you're supposed to do this here. Wow. And uh, I really felt pulled. I mean, my husband, the, the entrepreneur said, well, if we're going to open a treatment center, let's look around at comparables in the neighborhood. It didn't really, you know, I looked at a couple and I said, no, you don't understand. I, I'm supposed to do it here. And it was fascinating. I told you a little bit about the logistical things, but then we opened and um, we opened on a Friday. I only want and and also it was a six bed. And that's the license we could get there was for six. And that was my dream. Uh. So anyway, we opened, I took three people on a Friday. By Monday, I already had a full waiting list and I was full without an empty bed and a waiting list until... 9-11 when the planes, you know, when that whole disaster happened and people couldn't get flights. Uh, and, and so it was just, it was, it was a supposed to happen thing. Yeah. So as one of those dreams, you know, uh, I don't know how often people get those dreams, but I think sometimes we get those dreams and then don't pay enough attention, you know, mm -hmm. and, and the realization of that and, and being willing to have that be another factor in saying, I, I have to do this, you know? What was your husband's journey like watching you do this, supporting you through it? Like what, what was his experience of Montenegro and everything that you've done? You know, he was a big advocate for me in many ways. He thought he saw what was happening to me in the hospital system, the things I, I could and couldn't do with people. Um, in my, in my, I, I got $5,000 a month from the hospital and yet I had to hire my own assistants underneath that because mm -hmm. I said, we need a special dietitian and we need recovery coaches, but they weren't going to pay for that. So I paid for it out of my own salary and he saw just what was happening. And he has been someone who literally, I think has seen the vision as much as I and thought you're supposed to do this for people. Lucky for him, you know, I'm not really a big business person. And so he actually helped with getting all the legalese, you know, and I was really scared when I saw, oh, it's going to cost this much money. And, uh, but he's kind of a risk taker. I said, my temperament's not. Yeah. And, um, and it was, it was really grateful to have somebody who has his kind of temperament. You know, we became a good match in that way. That's great. And I, and I love that one of the things that you've been doing also is training um, recovery coaches, basically. So, so not just the work that you did, but that's something that you've really invested time and years in. Well, you know, what happened is Montanito was a gap in the field. We had outpatient treatment and then we had hospitals. And after I sold Montanito, um, it was kind of depressing in some ways. I, I, I was going to stay on. That didn't really work out. And uh, I, I, I felt a little bit like, you know, 
I had this baby and now it was kind of gone. And then what, I what realized- sell it, Carolyn, let me just ask you that before we go any further. Say what that made, again? Yeah, what made you sell it? Well, what I really thought is I was gonna take on partners and I was gonna take on these partners that were, had money, I had already, I had moved across to the East Coast because 30% of our patients were coming from there and people were begging me open up on the East Coast and I was reluctant to do that. and. So I thought, well, I don't want to do it by myself. And I met these great partners and just sold a percentage of the business, not really understanding, and they had a higher percentage of the business, not really, under, and then that was great, the first deal. But then they wanted to sell. And I can't be, um, I can't even criticize them because they were equity people. That's the business they're, you know, it's like that Zen Cohen about the scorpion that stings the person that takes them across the river, you know? I mean, you can't, that's his nature. Yeah. It was their nature. All of a sudden, uh, then now I'm expanded. I'm now on the East Coast. I, I, we bought a place in Florida. It became a little bit overwhelming, but they wanted to sell again. And so I, I, I kind of had to go along with that. And, but I still thought I'll stay as clinical director and um, I can do that. But through a series of events, uh, Bruce, my husband, who was the CEO of the company, had two heart attacks and I had to make a decision. Um, I was already just sort of separating with clinical ideas with the new owners. And now my husband is in this situation and I realized I had to make a, a decision. I'm walking on the beach and it, it just came to me I have to let it go. You know, nothing lasts forever. I've trained a number of people. I've set this up. Hopefully, let it let it continue, and um, and and maybe there's something else for me. You know, and and then the coaching thing. Then what did happen is a few little seeds got planted in this coaching thing, and I realized I always train therapists differently than other therapists because I always train therapists. Many of them who were recovered, so people sought me out at Montanita who, who were recovered. Whereas a lot of treatment programs, even to this day, even if you are recovered from an eating disorder, you're not allowed to tell the clients or the patients, which I just think is so sad. But anyway, I think it's so backwards. I mean, several of them have changed their tune and now allow, but a lot of them still don't. But uh, so I was training recovered staff anyway, and I also trained them to do things. Now imagine this, if you're a therapist and you go to school and you're trained as a therapist. No one teaches you how to sit down at a restaurant and eat a meal with someone with anorexia or someone with bulimia or someone with binge eating disorder who wants to order all this food and is all of a sudden having all these cravings or someone with bulimia who gets up from the table and goes running to the bathroom. How do you train? So I always trained staff. My therapists couldn't just show up to a treatment center and do their individual therapy session and go home. Every therapist who worked for me had to agree that they would also sit down and have one or two meals during the week with the clients. So they could actually be there at the moment when the clients needed the most help. Yeah. And that was really interesting because a lot of therapists are like, what, you want me to eat? And I said, yeah, that's part of the job. You know, I understand it if you don't feel comfortable, but then training them also, take, take the person who has had to gain 10 pounds or 20 pounds or 30 pounds with anorexia nervosa, they need to buy new clothes. How is that going to feel for them? Mm. 
I needed therapist to be able to go. I needed to train these people to be able to go take them to the store. We did all kinds of things. We put positive um, uh, sticky notes on the mirrors and the dressing rooms before they went in. And, you know, we, when they, we would um, help them take clothes off the rack and not look at the numbers. So they had a number to, define themselves with and all these different things that we did or how do you sit with someone when you're putting your arm around them and helping them get through when they really feel like purging after they just ate something like maybe a piece of cake that I haven't eaten for five years. So fast forward to realization that there's still a gap that exists and there's sober coaches and life coaches and um, you know all kinds of addiction coaches out in the field. And I realized, why are there not eating disorder coaches? And I'd thought about this before because I had trained people, at the time I called them support counselors, not coaches. But I thought, I, wh why, why is that? And part of it is the field was kind of, um, let's just say a little dismissive of it. And partly because uh, they, they would say things like, um, this is a very difficult mental illness. You know, someone can't just be a recovery coach and expect to know what to do. You know, who, who does the training? There was a lot of um, reaction to it. Whereas the 12 step community had been functioning for years in yeah. a whole different arena. Yeah. They had been going before treatment centers for chemical dependency were even set up. So it was a little different. They were already the 12 step thing and sponsors were already way in power. You know what I'm saying? We're already all, all over. Totally. So I, I thought, you know, I think part of it is that there's no certification process. It's true that you don't want to think you can treat somebody just because you had an eating disorder. That doesn't make you capable of treating somebody. But if you did have an eating disorder and you are interested in giving back, there are a lot of skills you can learn. And I realize a lot of those skills were skills I had taught my therapist how to sit with someone during a meal, you know, how to take someone shopping, how to go to their house. Like in chemical dependency, when someone leaves a treatment center, sponsors often go to their home, get rid of all the alcohol that's still in there or the drugs, you know, help them transition. There was nothing like that for eating disorders. So it. it's so weird hearing you say this though, because I'm, as I'm listening to you, especially when you talked about going shopping, like I, I, I can think of countless times, like countless times in my 20s and my 30s, less so I would say the last five to 10 years, because I'm kind of used to myself and kind of know yeah. what some of my, my, my triggers might be. Yeah. And I know how to move myself through them. I can't, just so many times I would get distressed in a dressing room, in a store, yeah. um, trying on clothing. And, right. and I remember like telling like, a, you know, a boyfriend or a friend I had at the time, and they didn't understand like they, but it's so true. It's, it's all of those other triggers that you have that, you know, that the eating disorder is one thing, but the way it shows up in your life. It can linger, you know, and it completely. can keep you, it, it can either keep you ill. I call all those little things, recovery sabotaging things, you know, mm. like they may not be, they may be what a lot of other people do, but for someone who had an eating disorder, they can be triggers. And how you can work them out into not being triggers um, is exposure and having somebody who's gone through it. Now, not all of my coaches have, have a history of an eating disorder. There are some people who have applied for the coaching program who maybe had 
a child or maybe had a friend or is a nurse or a therapist who wants more skills. But I would say 95% of the people who've um, become certified are, are recovered. And it, it, to me, I, I just can't imagine when I hear people say, who have an eating disorder say, I've never met anyone who was recovered. I, I, I always say, and to this day, that seems so odd to me, but it still happens, especially from other countries. But I always say, how sad to have an illness and you've never had, an, had a conversation with somebody who's had it and gotten over with it, over, over it. And they're out there, but I realized they just needed training. So the training's pretty significant. It takes about a year. Um, some people finish a little sooner. Some people take a little longer. Um, and there's a there's a lot of exams and there's a there's an internship that I supervise every single case and listen to every single session because I want to make sure that if they you know it has my name on it and I want to make sure they're out there you know doing the, the right thing but at this point I think we have about I'm probably off a little bit but about 57 coaches some of them aren't graduated yet but um, uh, in about now at this point it's 10 or 11 countries. Hmm. Wow. So, so here's the interesting thing about this conversation, because on the one hand, you know, in, you know, my, my mind goes, a bunch of people watching or listening may have dropped off because they're like, oh, I don't know anything about eating disorders. This doesn't interest me. So I'm, I'm going. But on the other hand, the truth for me about everything in life is everything is on a scale. Like, you know, we're all somewhere right. on, on an energy scale of right. all of the isms and schisms that are there. Now, a full-blown um, drug addict has gone all the way up the drug addiction scale. But the tendencies, the, 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 some of the behaviors, some of the reasons to get lost in drugs exist in all of us at some level. It's just we haven't necessarily gone down that route. So the one thing that keeps coming up as we talk, you know, we're such a, a body a body judgmental, body shaming, uh, yeah. body dysmorphic culture. And it's so in our culture that even anyone listening or viewing who may never have felt like they had an eating disorder, I bet so many people relate to this idea of not liking their body, wishing they were a bit thinner, uh, not liking trying on outfits because it's so woven into our culture. And it's so interesting that this is, this is kind of where we're at. But I do feel like there is a lot of healing happening. And even that Netflix disclaimer tells us that something that has clearly been taboo in our society that we're not supposed to talk about is now being brought to a bit more prominence, even if they still feel it has to have a trigger yeah. warning at this point. Right. Well, it's uh, many people have said, you know, uh, what, what, what you're teaching, for example, as far as, um, the whole ego and soul piece, you know, helping people realize you, you have an ego and, and you, but you also have a soul or are a soul, uh, yeah. but, and helping people distinguish that and ego is important for identity and, and, and all those things that help us, you know, define who we are as separate from somebody else that make, you know, I am a teacher or I am a therapist or I'm a wife, but also, I weigh this much or I run this many miles or all the things that we think make us who we are. And then there's this essence core self in there that when you spend some time really understanding that and engaging in that, 
you, you start to have a different perspective on your life. And that's not just for eating disorders. That kind of lesson is a big lesson for and everyone who's trying to navigate this culture. So just that's one tiny thing and the things that I tried to teach. And I, and I see myself as a teacher as much as a therapist because I think that the people who come to me, there are things that even if they were connected to in the beginning, got disconnected. And when you get reconnected to that part of yourself and you even learn how to take a few steps back and be in that wise presence where you watch your thoughts go by, where you uh -huh. learn to respond versus react, you know, all those things that we know from and which are old Buddhist principles, acceptance versus resistance. These are lessons that are useful and they are useful for me today. And my eating disorder is gone years ago, but they still help me today. So I agree with you. I think these are universal kinds of things. Totally. And, and if I'm not mistaken, I, I was reading earlier, you have care for the soul uh, was one of the, one of the, let me see. Yeah. Known for bringing care of the soul to your treatment philosophy and work settings. And, yeah. and it's interesting because that, that, you know, that, that was so evident when we met, but it, even in the story that you shared about Deva and Maten, you know, you said, what, 30 years ago, 25 years ago, you had them with small groups in, in the facility yeah. um, before, before they had gone on to kind of, you know, spread across the world the way they have. Yeah, you know, it's because I had a group, uh, well, it's for a number of reasons I did that, but part of it was I had a group and in this group, I brought in, you know, angel cards and had, had them draw angel cards. And I never ha had anyone believe in a certain spiritual, you know, you don't have to follow a religious thing, but you can do whatever it is with these cards. But let me just show you what it might be like to put your energy towards this deck and see what card you pull. And they were always beautiful cards, you know, but I also taught them to chant and I taught them to do Ohm. And I said, just see how this feels to you resonating. And I had Deva's rendition of Ohm and I taught them other songs and we would go out and look at the moon and, and talk about that, the whole concept of the cosmos and all these things. I mean, I didn't have kids. So in a way, I think I, they were my kids, you know? Yeah. Uh, but all those things and then and then and and bringing all those things it, it in one way it also gives people not just um all the work to what are you recovering from but what you are recovering to is a big part of this because people need to see that when they're letting go of something i know i was terrified to let go of it all the fear that comes with it and it didn't feel like an illness it kind of felt like who i was so i had to go through this transformation to realize I'm not getting rid of this part of myself. I'm integrating it back in so that I'm a whole self again, but I don't need the behaviors. You know, does that make sense? Completely, completely. And it's funny, you know, over the years with all the one-on-one -on -one sessions I did, sometimes addic addiction would come into it as an aspect with, with the work I would do with people. And the one thing I had learned that I would relay out is if you're trying to eliminate something from your life, you have to bring something new in at the same time or before, exactly. like, you know, you can't, otherwise it's just loss. All you're focused on is loss. But if you're, exactly. if you're giving yourself something else, something new, something's coming in that wasn't there before, it's going to give you a much better chance of, of balancing across into that new thing and letting go of the destructive. You know that um, 
experiment in chemistry where there's this, I don't know if you ever took chemistry, but where there's this tube, this U tube, and it has blue water in. And it's like, okay, you have this red water. You can't turn the tube upside down. How do you get the blue water out? Well, you pour the red water in and it comes in like this. And, and then the, you know, kind of slowly pushes the blue water out. And I used to talk about that a lot when I talked about body image because other treatment centers would do things like, you know, have, oh, this just kills me, you know, lie down on the body, I mean, on the floor, on a piece of paper and do a body tracing and then write the parts that they were upset with and things like that. Or, I mean, yeah. or let's see you put something around and um, what is the real size of your arm and what do you think the size of your arm is and see people have a big thing and although it seems to make sense because you're trying to show see how distorted they are one i think that makes people be distorted on purpose because they certainly don't want to get it wrong and get you know what i mean mm, but the other thing me. is it puts all this focus on body 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 image and to me i always say it's like telling people don't think about a white horse <laughs> So I never had a body image group at Montanito. Yeah. I had a body and soul group. And so I would do things and say, I'd come in and say things like, okay, I want you today to write a letter to your body from your soul, right? Or I would come in and say, let's say Karen died today and she's, Karen, lie down on the floor, okay? Now, I want everybody to write on a piece of paper what's here and what's gone, which is a fascinating thing to have people do because, you know, what's here, and they can get very creative, you know, this lifeless carcass of flesh, you know, hair, skin, you know, bones, whatever, and what's gone, and they would, you know, these beautiful essence, soul, spirit, they had a lot of words for it, but ultimately then, what have you been paying more attention to? Where has been your God? You know, what have you been putting your allegiance to? How much time have you been spending obsessing over the stuff on the left side of the paper versus nurturing the stuff on the right side of the paper and helping people realize in a, in a whole different way, uh, um, healing i would say to them you thought you came for eating disorder treatment but in a way it's life school because mm. i think when you are healed in that way and we treat our body like our our beautiful earth suits you know here on the planet housing our soul i think that those other symptoms i mean they become less and less necessary in fact they become people start to see them fading as not making sense anymore you know i love i love everything you just said and i just want to encourage listeners or viewers that if 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 you resonate with that i love that right a love letter to your body from your soul so i just want to point i just want to yeah. hold that up write a yeah. love letter to your body from your soul if you're listening and you're like kind of churning some of the body dysmorphia stuff or that yeah i don't like this yeah, that's a great thing to do. Write a love letter to your body from your soul. Do you want me to give you another one? Or oh, yes. Go on. Go on. Okay. Another assignment that I would do in that particular group was um, I would say, okay, you are were sent from Mars. I just made that up as a planet. And you, you come to this planet and you, I want you to, to describe a, a, a flower. 
and you have to describe it, you know, using, and it would be so interesting. You have to describe it. You can't say, you know, it's the color peach. You have to say it's the same color as the earth when they have their sunsets or, you know, kind of mm -hmm. figuring out a way and talk about the thorns on the flower or for protection and stuff like that. And they, they were amazingly good at doing these kinds of assignments. But then, and this is what happens when you, and this is a beginner's mind kind of um, experiment. Then I would say, okay, now I've, I'm, I'm your commander from Mars and I'm saying, describe the human body, describe the body that you have been given, that you have inhabited to live on earth. And I will accept nothing less than the way you described the flowers because there was no, pejorative stuff about the flowers nobody wrote you know mm. her petals are smaller than mine and i'd go around looking at what they were writing and if they started to do that i would say no nope, nope no one over. said this flower could lose a bit of weight i love it right, brilliant. right. your thorns are too big you know <laughs> anyway so it was beautiful because i would just think of these things up sometime driving to work and uh you know, I, I would look at what they wrote, they would look at what they wrote, mm. and, and the kinds of things about, about the human body, and they would write about it, and, and the things that it did, and the functions that it served, and everything that it allowed them to do as a human on the planet. Had I just said, write all the good things about having a body, that wouldn't have worked. And so this is the way I think you make it more soulful when you have, when you bring in a, a kind of, well, beginner's mind, I think. And, you know, Thomas, I, I, I read all the Thomas More books, you know, Care of the Soul and The Reenchantment of Everyday Life. And I'd really, and even Dark Nights of a Soul, where he talks about, you know, nobody wishes a, a major illness on anybody. But once you have one, you sift it for its gold. And there's no doubt in my mind that anorexia nervosa was one of my biggest teachers. And that's the other thing that I tell people. I don't want them to feel ashamed that they have this. I talk about the opportunity it gives them to learn things that they may they never have gone down that path, you know? I so agree with that. I so agree with that. So I'm curious, Carolyn Costin, you know, you've had this incredible, um, you've been a really important pioneer in your field and you've had like a 40 year journey with, with holding space as a pioneer in this field. If you could time machine yourself today back to mm. 1980 and not because anything has gone wrong and I, I, I'm sure you're like me, I just believe everything that we learn we're meant to go through, but if you had the opportunity to time machine back 40 years and just give Carolyn Costin in 1980, like two or three tips that mm. might save her some time, might help her not go through certain struggles as, as she's done this pioneering work. What, what, what are the two or three things that come to mind? Boy, it's such a good question. And the only, only one really stands out. And it is my husband told me a long, long time ago. And I'm not sure I'm right about this, but I'm going to tell you what pops up. He encouraged me to open more residential treatment centers, Montanito centers. He encouraged me to 
have, you know, you could have these in, in all the different states. And I was really reluctant. I liked my little one, mm -hmm. you know, then I opened another one and then, you know, and it, and it did, it did get, um, it did get rather large, even when I still had it, but I was afraid to have it go too big. And I was kind of afraid that it would lose some nature of soul, you know, but yeah. I think what's that? No, I just, I, I mean, I understand, understand. that. Yes. Yeah. yeah. But, but I think in retrospect, I had trained enough people because I was so fortunate to have people who were with me like 10, 15, 18, 20, 22 years that I had a good cadre of people and I probably could have had those places and maybe had given more people the kind of treatment that I think is really healing and really worked. I mean, we didn't even talk about the outcome studies. This was not just something that, oh, Carolyn's doing this wacky thing in California and now in New York, but, you know, uh, or wherever, you know, she, it grew. It, it, we have a one to 10 year outcome study that was amazing. And I was like this when it was coming out, cause you don't really know until you do the data. And we followed all the patients one month, three months, six months, one year, a year and a half, two years and every year for 10 years. And it was outrageous, the rates of recovery in both bulimia and anorexia. So I know it worked. And so sometimes I think had I do it to do over again, maybe I wouldn't be so afraid to expand with the team that mm -hmm. I had. On the other hand, as you know, could be that if I expanded, maybe I would have lost control of it earlier and yeah. you know, who knows? So it's yeah. so hard to say. Yeah. What, what do you, I mean, I know, I know the world is a different place today than when you were beginning, you know, or everything you were doing, but I, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm projecting or assuming, but I'm just imagining the amount of resistance that you had to have the strength to kind of ignore, push against, uh, you know, carry on with you what know, you were doing. That's yeah. a really, that's a really good question, especially for listeners who want to do things, because yeah. one of the things that I, I was told um, early on by some top people in the field, you know, Carolyn, do you want to be known as someone who's recovered? Or do you want to be known as a good eating disorder therapist? And I walked away feeling a little shamed and uh, kind of with my tail between my legs. These were a couple of top people in the field at the time. And, um, and it didn't take me long to go, that is ridiculous why can't I be both yeah. and even though it was a little bit scary like people say you were so brave to come out and speak with hundreds of people at a conference I was the first person to stand up at an international eating disorder conference and say I'm recovered recovered and this conference was started by 12-step people I didn't know that when I was when I first applied to speak but people came up to me and I was like I was scared but I did it anyway. And mm. I, people always talk about, you were so brave being a pioneer and saying you were recovered. And honestly, I was led by, by truth, you know? And that's why, you know, that's why I love that name, Satya, that I was given, you mm. know, because it means truth. And I think sometimes when you're led by truth, you're led by conviction. And I just felt like, it's important to do 
it's important to get up and say this. And I also brought other people who I had treated and they talked about being recovered after having treatment and not just for six months or a month. They, I, at the first international conference where I spoke, I had maybe, I brought about four or five people who were recovered from all the different eating disorders and talk about how they had been recovered for two years or five years or six years. So I didn't just use myself because I mean, myself would have been good, but I think it was was better to show yeah. that this is just not me. This can be other people too. But I want to briefly say that also being a female in this field, all the people who ran the all the stuff in the beginning, uh, the hospitals and the the academic journals that came out and that were were also men. And and I have to say that it was sometimes subtle, sometimes not so subtle, but there was definitely a different kind of treatment towards me, especially now I'm a recovered person and I'm female, I'm opening a residential center. There was a lot of, um, a lot of talk, let's say, and a lot of uh, people trying to get me not to do it for one thing. And then the way it was referred to, and still today in this field, I feel a little bit like, you know, I, I started the first residential, I opened the first day treatment program in the US that was unattached to a hospital. I have six books and, and I see people, well, it's probably my ego being involved in this, but I'm just saying, I think as a female, I also had an uphill battle. <laughs> I don't see. know why I asked you, because, you know, when I think back to then, like even just the other day, like I watch, I'll watch any show that has female characters like that. That's always been more interesting to me. It's not that I don't love certain men, or, but what I always notice is how heavily criticized those shows are and the level of sexism in the reviewers that's probably unconscious. Um, and I was just, we were watching one right now and I just said to Stephen, wow, it's amazing. You read the reviews of this show. If it was two male actors in the lead, this would be like off the charts success, but it comes down a little bit and they make subtle digs about the women. And I'm like, oh, when is this gonna go away? It's well, gonna yeah, take I mean, time. I but I think of you 40 years ago doing what you were doing, yeah. I would give lectures and in the evaluation sometimes have people critiquing my clothing or the length of my skirts, mm -hmm. you know? Like, what about what I said? Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. No, I, I wondered about that. And um, so I'm curious, and this probably is just a good way for us to bring our conversation to a close. What's next for you? Like in this next few years, like what, what do you have any, any new visions or any, anything that you're working on right now that you feel passionate about? Well, funny you should ask, because <laughs> for a while, I said, I'm not writing any more books. I've been really pushed by the uh, Norton and Sons, who I wrote the Eight Keys book and workbook for, and they really want me to come up with another book because it's done well for them. And, you know, I said, Ugh, you know, I have enough books out there, but I can feel this brewing, mm -hmm. this thing about, it's a little bit about the soul piece it's a little bit about, uh, it's gonna sound weird, but it's about the relationship between developing uh, an eating disorder, or we could even say disordered eating, or this re unnatural relationship with our food and our body, and what it has to do with spirituality and quantum physics. 
Now that sounds fantastic. You know, it will be a hard book to write, but the reason I think it's so important is because what we are, what we know now, and I'm, I'm a neophyte, but I read a lot, what we know now about, about the field, uh, uh, the quantum field, and about the potentiality that exists, and how we as human beings, how we focus our attention and what we focus our attention on, how we, we don't create reality, but we kind of extract reality from, from all the potentials that are out there, like the, like the, like we learn about what happens in atoms, you know, as protons pop in and out, being, being wave-like or um, not material matter until there's a focus and then they pop into focus. And I think there's a lot of, when you look at ancient spiritual teaching, they talk about that. They talk about how we're all connected, you know, not do unto others as you would have others do unto you, but do unto others because they are you, you know? Totally. And um, I know it will be a hard book to write, but I've had flashes of it, but I haven't felt ready. And all of a sudden the other day I felt, and maybe it's this long rest from COVID because it's been a big rest for me in many ways. Mm. All my conferences were speaking engagements, everything, you know, canceled. Um, I think maybe I needed that rest um, to feel like I had the energy to, to birth another book. Cause it is like, it's like, Oh yeah. You know, it's a big, Oh book. yeah. No books are a big, big thing. Yeah. No. And I'm glad you brought that up because I actually, before we go, I wanted you to, which book would you recommend, uh, or books of yours? If anyone wanted to read one of your books, which, which one would you, would you highlight which one or two? Well, the one that I think is the most cultural one, and you don't even have to have an eating disorder, and it's an interesting one. It's called Your Dieting Daughter, but what I do in that book, you don't have to have a daughter who's dieting to, to what I do in that book is talk a lot about culture and what has happened in the culture and mm. how young girls and young boys are treated differently and just there's a lot of data in that book about how to be in the world, even if you have a niece or you're a teacher and, and you're around young girls. I mean, unfortunately, I, it's, it's just uh, specifically related um, to females. And I really should do an alternative one for males someday. That's that, who knows? Um, yeah. That's the, probably the one that has the most information about culture and technology, especially the new version of that book where I, you know, talk about social media and things like that. But I think if you're struggling, and even if it's just with um, disordered thoughts and feelings and body image and all that, then I think um, Eight Keys to Recovery from an Eating Disorder, because that's where I really talk about ego and soul. That's where I really do mindfulness practice, help people learn how to feel their feelings, challenge their thoughts, but feel their feelings, reach out to others. There's a lot of things in that book that I think help you just get help with being a human in this world. And how do I get help when I feel like I'm stuck, you know? Yeah. So probably that. And I wrote that book with a former um, client, Gwen Grab, who recovered and became a therapist. And we wrote it together. And it's funny because I would write things and then she would 
right? I know, I know what you're thinking. I thought this was, you know, ridiculous too about the soul self. And then she would talk about how it, how it helped heal her, you know? Fantastic. So it's an interesting book about us going back and forth. Fantastic. Well, great. Well, we'll put some links in the show notes to your website and, and these books. And for anyone who wants to dive in with you a little bit more, they can go to carolyn-costin.com. They we'll don't even also... have to. It can just be um, Car uh, carolyn carolyncoston.com and it'll automatically Perfect. go to that one. Yeah. Perfect. That's okay. easier. That's great. But Thank you for being here today. Uh, you know, when I when I first met you, I think we walked away and I said to Steve and I said, she's lovely, she's funny, and I love her fire. And, and I, <laughs> you know, I really, I really, I see how those those three qualities and many more in this conversation with you have really, have really Aww. driven and fed your work. So I'm really grateful to you for impacting the world the, the way that you have and impacting culture around this the way that you have. And thank you for being here today. Thank you so much for having me. It's really been a pleasure. I've been excited. It's one of the highlights I've been looking forward to during this whole lockdown time. So I really, yeah. really appreciate it. Well, and hopefully we'll be in person together soon. But yeah, thank okay. you, Carolyn. Lots of love. And uh, yeah, to anyone who wants to learn more about Carolyn's work, check out the show notes and we'll put all of the links there. Thank you so much for tuning in today. Welcome to Transmissions 2021. We are bringing Transmissions back this summer because last year when we first presented it, it was not only our most popular offering ever, we had several thousand of you join us from around the world. It was a way that I and my team could bring some of the energy of Soul Magic, our annual retreat, to you in the comfort of your own home, more affordably and with no limit on how many people we could serve. So Transmissions is a metaphysical, intuitive, and self-growth deep dive to allow you to cultivate more energy for your life and for you to bring to the world. The themes for this year are going to be joy, healing, expression, freedom, and magic. The way that these topics are explored is through five live broadcasts where I will not only teach intuitively, but I will channel my guides the Z's. We provide transcripts, audio downloads of each session. There is an energy blueprint that you will receive ahead of the course starting where I write a document basically that I channel about what energies we're going to be cultivating, looking at, moving, releasing. We also have several supplemental materials and videos from members of my team. So there are meditations, there are videos that help you support yourself as you go through a journey like this. We also have the private members forum, which is away from social media, so you can privately share and discuss with all other members of the course. The final element of our transmissions courses is the music album that Devorbozik and I create. This is both spoken word and music, and it's five 10-minute tracks. You may have seen that we've just publicly released last year's album, which we created for course members. So you can stream that right now on Spotify or wherever you get your music. But for this year, we will exclusively be bringing you Transmissions Volume 2, which will be available this year only to course members. So we invite you to check out the course page, read more details, and if it resonates for you to join us for Transmissions 2021, we would love to welcome you aboard.